0: Lecture Notes, The Medieval Period, Islamic Philosophy. The assigned textbook reading for this module is section 8.4 only of chapter 8 in the textbook. Before we dive into the two Islamic philosophers we're going to be covering in these lecture notes, I want you to watch the following short overview of Islam, and it's a video from Khan Academy. It's embedded in the Canvas lecture notes. I expect that most students in the class come in with some familiarity with Christianity, but many TJC students are less familiar with Islam, and since there's a lot of misinformation about Islam floating around, I think it's good to start with a very basic overview of the Muslim faith before we discuss two medieval Muslim philosophers. Alright, so, moving on. As you hopefully remember from the last module's lecture notes, remember that as we proceed during the Middle Ages. The Middle East was an intellectual powerhouse. A lot of great philosophy was going on in the Middle East, as well as other scholarly inquiry. And one thing that might be surprising is that the philosophy often involved a lot of interfaith dialogue. We've already seen some of this at play with Aquinas. Although he was a devoted Christian, Aquinas's philosophy engaged deeply with Aristotle, who's a pagan philosopher. (laughs) He also dialogued with leading Jewish and Muslim figures from his era. That spirit of dialogue among the monotheistic religious traditions, characterized Islamic and Jewish philosophy as well. After all, keep in mind that although these groups obviously had religious differences, philosophically speaking, their interests were very overlapping. For instance, there was a lot of debate about the eternality of the world in Muslim philosophy. Whether or not the world is eternal or has a beginning point at which it was created is obviously hugely relevant to any religion that holds that the world was brought into existence at a certain point by God. Similarly, Jews, Christians, and Muslims all cared very much about questions regarding personal identity because of the implications for their religious beliefs concerning life after death. What persists after death? Our soul? Our intellect? Or is life after death more like a recreation in which we are resurrected as bodies? Sadly, we are only going to cover two Islamic philosophers on account of our limited time. Notably, I'm leaving out Averroes, so apologies to him. I will give a shout out to Peter Adamson's podcast, History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. As the title suggests, he has a number of episodes on many, many figures in the history of philosophy, including lots of episodes on medieval philosophy in the Islamic world. So if you want to learn about Averroes, I would suggest his podcast as a great starting point. We're going to cover the philosophers Al-Ghazali and Avicenna. Yes, I realize that we have discussed Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, and now Al-Ghazali and Avicenna, and all of these A names are probably getting a little confusing. It's not on purpose, I promise. Okay, Al-Ghazali. Al-Ghazali is perhaps one of my favorite philosophers that we'll study in this class. We'll only be able to briefly cover him in this module, which is a pity because there's a lot of interesting things to discuss when it comes to Al-Ghazali. We're rewinding a little chronologically speaking in covering him. Al-Ghazali and Avicenna were roughly contemporaries of Anselm. Avicenna was a bit earlier. And Aquinas lived about 150 years later than the three of them. As with basically everyone we're studying in this class, Al-Ghazali wrote a number of texts, but we'll focus on a relatively brief text of his titled Deliverance from Error. Soon, we're going to be discussing Descartes, an famous and important Western philosopher, and looking at Descartes' skeptical method. You'll learn more then, but in brief, Descartes' skeptical project involves examining all of his beliefs and trying to doubt them in order to sort out which beliefs are good and which should be abandoned. Al-Ghazali does something similar in his deliverance from error. But what's so interesting about him is that he comes to a very different conclusion than Descartes. Descartes concluded that he could overcome skepticism and find knowledge by using his own reason to prove what he knows. But Al-Ghazali says that doubt and skepticism were like a sickness that fell on him and he did not escape through his own reason, but God had to specifically intervene to rescue him or cure him of skeptical illness. Descartes, in other words, seems to think that he can find and prove knowledge all by himself using reason, whereas Al-Ghazali seems to treat knowledge as something closer to a gift from God. Later on in the deliverance, Al-Ghazali argued that there are three levels of knowledge. They are one, fruitional experience, which is like a direct personal knowledge, two, apodictic proof, logically and rationally shown, and three, faith, which is accepted based on what others say. At these translations I realize like the labels are a bit clunky, but we'll make do. So fruitional experience is a rather fancy name, but the concept is actually pretty simple. It just means that the highest form of knowledge, according to Al-Ghazali, is direct personal experience. Al-Ghazali gives the example of knowing facts about what it's like to be drunk versus actually being drunk, but maybe it's easier to use his other example, that of knowing God. You can know a lot of things about God, or you can directly personally experience God. Al-Ghazali had a bit of a mystical bent, as you can maybe guess. The latter, this direct, personal, intimate knowledge, is the highest form of knowledge, he thinks. Another more concrete example might be knowing theoretically how to do work on a car. Pick something simple like changing oil. Theoretical knowledge of how to do this might come from reading a textbook description of what to do. That's some kind of knowledge. It's not nothing. But even higher is the knowledge of how to change a car how to change a car's oil that comes from actually doing it. Peritional knowledge or peritional experience in this case would be the knowledge that comes from actually executing the skill. The second best kind of knowledge is apodictic proof. Again, it's a fancy label, but the idea is pretty simple. Apodictic proofed is knowledge that's shown true through logical and rational proof. He thinks of this as a sort of knowledge we pursue in philosophy. Al-Ghazali thinks this is good and important, but he claims that it's not as high a form of knowledge as direct experience. Note that this is pretty controversial and unusual in comparison to the philosophers we've studied thus far. Almost all of the figures we've studied thus far have strongly emphasized that reason brings about the best knowledge. Think of Plato. And imagine telling Plato, "Eh, knowledge that comes from reason is okay, but it's not as good as the knowledge of direct intimate acquaintance. I imagine Plato totally losing it at this idea. And an aside, of course, yes, it would somewhat depend on how we defined direct intimate experience. For instance, I think you actually could argue that for Plato, when we reason and acquire knowledge through reason, it's that our reason is intimately and directly acquainted with what one knows, like the Forms, capital F. But Al-Ghazali meant his point to be somewhat of an attack on traditional philosophical views, I think. So I suspect he would resist this idea and would say that, no, he really does mean to say something very different than the other philosophers maybe keep in mind that another one of his books is titled Incoherence of the Philosophers. Finally, the lowest form of knowledge is faith. This might be confusing, because you might think, well, is Al-Ghazali saying that religious knowledge is the lowest kind of knowledge? But in this context, what he means by faith is not specific to religious knowledge, but rather just means believing something because someone else told you. Philosophically speaking, we would call this believing on testimony. Again, there is a place for this, but you can see how believing something just because someone told you is not as good as demonstrating the truth for yourself with reason or directly experiencing yourself. Again, take the example of knowing how to change the oil in one's car. The highest kind of knowledge would be having done it and knowing how to do it. The next best would be a textbook textbook knowledge where you understand the steps and have a good theoretical grasp of what to do, but you've never put it into practice. Believing on faith is where I personally am at. Do I know that my car's oil needs to be changed? Yes. Do I know why? Not really. Do I know how to do it? Nope. I just know that the oil needs changing in order to keep the engine in good working order because other people have told me this. Or, Consider, again, the example of knowing God. And knowledge of God is really what Al-Ghazali cares about, I think. Again, highest knowledge would be a kind of mystical experience of God, direct, intimate contact with God. Next best would be philosophical knowledge of God, through the philosopher's proofs, etc. The lowest knowledge of God would just be to believe some things about God in light of what your parents and the imam or the rabbi or priest or pastor have told you about God. In short, in contrast to many philosophers who are eager to elevate reasoning to the highest form of knowledge, Al-Ghazali is really a bit of a mystic. Interestingly, although Aquinas's meticulous work throughout the Summa, using reason to synthesize Christian teachings in Aristotle, might make you think that Aquinas is definitely on team reason, as it were, Aquinas also is reported to have had a mystical experience at the end of his life, and afterwards is supposedly is supposed to have said that his entire meticulously written and carefully reasoned summa was straw in comparison, i.e. garbage, flimsy and worthless. One aside, I did say is reported um, to flag that it's not totally clear whether this story about Aquinas is actually true. Okay, Avicenna. Avicenna was one of the most significant Islamic philosophers. As I've already said, during the Middle Ages, Muslim and Jewish philosophers in the Middle East were engaging with Aristotle in great depth, writing immense and detailed commentaries on Aristotle's works and responding to his ideas with their own writing. Whereas Aquinas in contrast was excited by the revolutionary and brand new body of ideas he discovered in Aristotle when the translations of Aristotle's work finally made it to Europe. Avicenna's work on Aristotle, and his own Avicenna's own original works were hugely influential. He was an important figure for his fellow Muslim philosophers, but he also had a big influence on Jewish and Christian philosophers. As with a lot of figures in the history of philosophy, Avicenna wasn't just a philosopher. He worked on philosophy, science and medicine. But our modern sharp divisions between all of these different subjects did not really exist in his day. He was by all accounts, uh, an intellectual prodigy. He published an encyclopedia by the time he was 20, and all in all wrote over 400 texts. Amusingly, Avicenna seems to have been pretty confident, mm, okay, probably arrogant, about his own intellectual talent. In his autobiography, he wrote that he memorized the entire Quran by 10, worked with a tutor in philosophy, but quickly knew more than his tutor about both logic and astronomy, and claims that he easily taught himself to be a doctor since, quote, medicine is not one of the difficult sciences, end quote. And since medicine was too easy, he then moved on to verifying the works of the philosophers, all by the age of 16. (laughs) Okay, Uh, one of the things Avicenna is famous for is this thought experiment known as a flying or floating man thought experiment. Before I describe the thought experiment, let's back up. Let me pose some questions. Say your body is destroyed, so you are dead. Do you continue to exist in any way? Or say that you undergo a dramatic transformation in personality and conduct as a result of mental illness, like schizophrenia might be a good example here. Are you still the same person? Or is the person after the schizophrenia diagnosis a separate person from the person before? And it's just like two people occupying the same body. Final question. A lot of people naturally gravitate towards the idea that we are our soul or our conscious experience or something like that. After all, you probably wouldn't say that getting an organ transplant makes you a different person. Big changes in the body like that don't make you a different person, or so most people think. But modern neuroscience can provide a pretty thorough explanation of how your conscious experience comes from the body. For example, think about your emotions, which are probably subtly coloring all or almost all of your conscious experience, even if you don't realize it. Emotions are deeply embodied. And any full explanation of what an emotion is, and how it comes about, will have to consider the way in which emotions stem from the body's reaction or perception of our experiences and surroundings. So Hopefully, you figured out by now that the underlying question here is What kind of thing are you? A purely immaterial thing, like a soul, an intellect, pure consciousness? Or are you a body with consciousness that can be 100% explained in terms of physical and embodied states? Or are you some kind of hybrid, like a non physical thing, a soul of some sort that happens to be tied to a physical body? Avicenna's thought experiment is in part his answer to these questions. So now let's look at the thought experiment itself, and this is a long quote from Peter Adamson. Imagine, he says, that a person is created by God in midair, in good condition, but with his sight veiled, and his limbs outstretched, so that he is touching nothing, not even his own body. This person has no memories, having only just been created. Will his mind be a blank, devoid as it is of past or present sensory experience? No, says Avicenna. He will be aware of his own existence. But what does the flying man thought experiment prove? Avicenna draws a surprising conclusion. It shows that we are not identical with our bodies. Just consider, the flying man is aware of himself. He knows that he exists, but he is not aware of his body. He doesn't know that his body exists, nor indeed that any body exists. And if I am aware of one thing, but not another, how can those two things be identical? Again, drawing on Adamson's explanation, let's unpack what this is supposed to show. The thought experiment is supposed to show that we are essentially souls. Our essence, our defining feature, the thing that makes us us, is our soul, a non-material entity. Avicenna's argument for this conclusion seems to go something like this. Premise one, the flying man is aware that he exists. Premise two, if my existence is identical to my body's existence, i.e. if I just am a body, then I should be aware of both my existence and my body simultaneously. Three, the flying man is not aware of his body. Premise four, so the flying man's existence is not identical to his body. Conclusion, therefore, his essence is in his soul, is his soul. However, This is probably not a very good argument. We can be conscious of something without being conscious of everything about it. For example, you have a consciousness or awareness of me, but there are lots of things about me you don't know. The same is true of my consciousness of you. When it comes to premise two, which was, if my existence is identical to my body's existence, i.e. if I just am a body, then I should be aware of both my existence and my body simultaneously. So about this premise, we might say, look, Avicenna, you can be something without being aware of it. Just because we aren't aware of the body doesn't mean that we are not a body. Still, problems aside, this does not mean the thought experiment is totally useless or lost. Even if the experiment can't prove that we are essentially souls, it does seem to show that there's some amount of difference between the soul and body, because the experiment seems to show that we could be aware of our soul without being aware of our body. Avicenna does seem to offer a decent challenge to anyone who believes that the soul and body are totally identical and cannot be known independent of each other. Finally, the thought experiment also makes a good point about the fundamental importance of self-awareness. What makes your consciousness or your mental life is probably better. It's a more neutral term different from artificial intelligence. What makes your mental life different from a dog's? You are aware of yourself in a way that a dog or a computer probably are not. I say probably regarding the computer since maybe someday computers could have self-awareness of the sort that we do, but that would be a pretty tall order. We have concepts of ourselves ideals for ourself, we can measure ourselves against those ideals and those concepts. We can turn our consciousness inward to ourself and ask whether our beliefs are good, whether our actions are right. But your dog can't do that. A computer can't do that. Section B for Avicenna, his argument for the existence of God. As you've probably figured out by now, one major theme in medieval philosophy was giving arguments for God's existence. In the last module, we looked at Anselm and Aquinas' arguments for the existence of God. In this module, we're going to look at a fascinating and influential argument for the existence of God put forth by Avicenna. In order to understand this argument, however, we have to first understand three concepts – necessity, contingency, and impossibility. We'll first apply them to statements, since they're easier to understand when applied to statements, but Avicenna applies them to being – so necessity, necessary statements must be true. Necessary statements are always necessarily true. Next, contingency. Contingent statements could have been otherwise. They might be true, but they are not true by necessity. And then impossibility. Impossible statements are logically contradictory and thus impossible. They cannot be true. So let's look at some examples. Necessary. All squares have four sides. This is just the definition of a square. It cannot be otherwise, and it is true in all possible versions of the world. Contingent. I am currently residing in Texas. This is true, but it's not necessary. Things could have been otherwise. For one, my very existence and being is contingent. Maybe my parents would never have met and I never would have been born. Or maybe I could have been born but killed tragically in a car accident at a young age. Or maybe I could be alive and well but residing in a different state or a different country. In other words, in other possible versions of the world, this statement is false. And that means this statement is contingent, impossible. Squares are round. This is definitionally false. false by definition of what a square is. It's not true in any version of the world. Unlike my own existence or where I live, in every possible version of the world, squares are not round. Thus, this statement is impossible. Okay, that introduction aside, we're now prepared to look at Avicenna's argument for the existence of God. The following is a rough summary by me based on, again, the work of Peter Adamson uh, premise one, consider everything that exists, like really, really everything. And imagine that everything that exists put into an imaginary net. Now consider the net of everything that exists as an object in its own right. Everything in the net is contingent. That was premise two, by the way. Okay. Premise three, all contingent things have a cause, right? If they could have not come into being, there must've been something that caused them to come into being. Premise four, But what about that net itself? And the net is is a metaphor. The aggregate of everything, this imaginary net that we're considering that contains all things. It must also have a cause. Okay, number five. Well, is the cause of the aggregate, like the cause of everything that exists? Impossible, necessary, or contingent? Six. The cause can't be impossible. Impossible things don't exist. So obviously they can't be causes because you have to exist to be a cause. Seven, well, neither can the cause be contingent because if the cause was contingent, it would be included within that quote unquote net within that aggregate of all contingent things. Therefore, the only possible cause of the aggregate of everything that exists must be necessary. And then Avicenna goes on to argue that a being that exists necessarily must have all the properties we normally attribute to God, like eternal, perfect, unchanging, immaterial, etc. In other words, he tries to show that the necessary cause of all things is in fact, God. So that was a pretty dense argument, you'll probably need to read it or listen to it a few times in order to understand it, which is fine. In fact, rereading things or re listening to things is just a habit you should adopt when it comes to philosophy. Still, hopefully you recognize something about the argument that is very plausible. And in fact, is a thought that many people do have, that all of the things around us are contingent, they could have not existed. And so there must be some reason that they do exist. And that reason is perhaps God.